Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. All right. If everybody wants to go ahead and move back to their seats. Good to see you all. Good to see you. Welcome. Hi, Molly. So as you, can, as you can probably tell, we have the kids in with us. We're trying a little experiment to see them uh, be part of what we're doing. Uh, and I forgot that when I was writing this sermon, so I had to go through it and scrub all the cuss words out of it. Um, the fifth Sunday, I get more of an allotment from the elders than normal. Um, so this is, uh, for all intents and purposes, the last sermon in this series, A Generous Common Life. We've been in one passage of scripture for about three months, or at least using it as this launching point. Um, And most of you should have it memorized by now. It's Galatians 6, verses 1 through 10. We've been looking at it in all these different translations as well to try to get the full flavor out of what it is um, that Paul is speaking to us. And today we're going to read, I'm going to be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Um, This is a version that a lot of biblical scholars would really prefer because they think um, it's most authentic to the original, original text. So uh, most of like the letters and pieces of scripture, they would be written and rewritten. And so we have lots and lots and lots of different pieces of uh, these different uh, books in the, in the Bible. Um, and one of the tasks of scholarship is how far back can you get to the oldest one? Because we would assume the oldest is the best preserved version of what the original writers had to say. And so the NRSV is very diligent about that. Um, I really quite like it as well. So I'm going to read uh, our passage in Galatians 6, 1 through 10 in the NRSV. And most of you should know this uh, passage of scripture by heart by now because we've been just doing it over and over and over again. All right. So here we go. My friends, if anyone is detected in a transgression... You who have received the Spirit should restore such one in a spirit of gentleness. Take care that you yourselves are not tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. For of those who are nothing think they are something, they deceive themselves. All must test their own work. Then that work, rather than their neighbor's work, will become a cause for pride. For all must carry their own loads. Those who are taught the word must share in all good things with their teacher. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for you reap whatever you sow. If you sow to your own flesh, you will reap corruption from the flesh. But if you sow to the spirit, you will reap eternal life from the spirit. So let us not grow weary in doing what is right, for we will reap at harvest time if we do not give up. So then, whenever we have an opportunity, let us work for the good of all and especially for those of the family of faith. Let's pray. So Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth that you are here and that you are with us, that you are for us, you're not against us. And Lord, I pray day by day that we would be able to embrace that radical truth of who you are in a way that we can shed um, idolatrous notions that we have of what it means to be God. Lord, we repent of the times that we've kept you small, uh, that we've tried to tell you what you're supposed to believe or stand for, um, that we have robbed ourselves of 
the awe of standing before God, seeing you face to face. And Lord, I pray that as we're winding down this series, as we're continually working out what is, what is our load to carry and what is our burden to carry together, that in all of it, we would have this, this deep res- resonance with what we see in Jesus as the true face of who you are. And today, Lord, we want to enter into this word, the spirit of openness, willing to be surprised and delighted by how we find you in this place. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Um, so there's a small town up north where there was an interfaith group that would meet regularly to talk about issues in the community. Um, and this particular community was having a major uh, problem with squirrels, um, which I just found out. L only has two fears. Squirrels and raccoons, that's it. That's, that's pretty impressive. Um, but so there's this problem with these squirrels. Um, all these different spiritual leaders are getting together regularly to try to solve these problems. So the rabbi says, yeah, we've really got this problem. Like the squirrels are begging for food outside of the synagogue, and it's just causing this mess outside. And the Baptist preacher says, well, you know, we have problems with the squirrels actually getting into our building, and they're getting up into the roof, and they're kind of ruining things by chewing on wires and whatnot. And the imam says, well, you know, in, in, our, in our community, like some of the kids have actually been bitten by these squirrels. Um, so it's a real, real problem for us. And then the Anglican priest stands up and he says, well, actually, we solved the problem. I took all the squirrels, we baptized them, we confirmed them, and now they only come on Christmas and Easter. <laughs> now that joke originally was about a Catholic priest, but in the spirit of what I'm about to say, I decided to internalize it a little bit more <laughs> and make it about the Anglicans. Um, I love this joke because it shows this attempt for all of us to, to come together from different viewpoints um, in order to create a space of civility um, and goodness in how we interact with our neighbors. And I think you would agree um, that we're in a very tricky point in history right now. We're seeing a lot of these uh, problems of almost uh, just rampant tribalism. The thing that we feel like we were delivered from thousands of years ago is kind of making um, you know, its comeback in a way, and it's tearing us apart, not just within... Um, the American nation, but also within uh, the Christian community. And that's kind of what I want to speak to today in the spirit of this Galatians 6 work, because I think it's something that we see all the way through what Paul is saying to us. It's kind of a common thread, and I want to speak today about embrace. I want to offer you a theology of embrace, because I believe that this might be the best way forward for us as a people. And so this is kind of my thesis today, that it's our willingness to embrace both the neighbor and the enemy, the oppressed, and the oppressor that makes us most like King Jesus. It's our willingness to embrace all groups of people. What we see a lot in our modern era is championing the idea of inclusion, that we want more and more people at the table. We want more and more people to be part of what it is that we're doing. And I think we would all agree that exclusion tends to be a really bad thing. We don't want to see people uh, cast out or told that they're not welcome. But I think that not so much is there a problem with the idea of inclusion. I think inclusion has its limits in our modern era. And perhaps you see this a lot in our news today, um, that when we try to be inclusive um, and bring more and more people to the table, we end up only being inclusive of the people who agree with us that we should be inclusive, and we become exclusive to the people who are 
um, we have decided are exclusive people. And I think this is what's responsible for the gradual shattering of our society, that the best intentions of being an inclusive people, and it's, it's one of the things that I really do love about the American project, that from the beginning, whether or not the founders realized it, it was about being a, a, a group of people, being a nation that can, can kind of transcend some of those categories that we would normally have, like this democratic experiment, although we, obviously we haven't always gotten it right. But now we're in this era where there's so much championing of inclusivity and belonging that we're actually finding ourselves ripped back apart into these very small uh, tribal categories. And I think that that is actually really contrary to the radical nature of what we find in Jesus and by extension what we're supposed to be as the people of God. And so Jesus has all these interesting categories in, um, in his life, in his ministry, one of them being neighbor, right? Like, you know, the, the people would ask him, well, who is my neighbor? And he would tell them stories to challenge their assumptions of who they think is worthy of their space or who's not worthy or whether or not they would agree on, uh, you know, very key issues. And a neighbor is just whomever is around you. A neighbor is proximity. And whether you're rooted into a particular place or you travel around, your, your category of neighbor is about physical interaction with other people. I've told many of you about my neighbor, Frank. He's from Albania. He considers it the greatest country that exists, even though he hasn't been there since 1968. Um, and he loves to watch, uh, watch me mow my lawn to make sure I do it properly, which I never do. Um, so he's always telling me to like move my lawnmower higher and higher. And, um, he's, he's fantastic. And he sees all these cars in my house every week. And he's like, oh, what are, you, what are you doing? What are you doing? What is this? I'm like, oh, it's a Bible study. He's like, oh, okay. Are you, are you Catholic? I'm like, well, no, not really. And he's like, oh, okay. Well, I just believe like, just you believe what you want to believe. Just don't. I'm like, okay, bud. Like, we'll talk about it. He's fantastic. He's like 80. He's like this size. He's like seen a few things in his day, you know, like a couple teeth hanging on for dear life. He's the best. Um, he's not who I would have like chosen as a neighbor, right? Like this is what we often think in the category of neighbor is we choose people based on our preference. We would love to choose our neighbors. We'd love to choose people that think like us, that feel like us, that act like us, that belong to our tribes, to our cultures. But that's not what the category of neighbor means for Jesus. It's whomever God brings around you in physical proximity. But Jesus had this other category called enemy. And people would ask, often ask Jesus, who are my enemies? And enemy is anybody who is over there. It's those people over there. And I, I like to think of the category of enemy as anyone who causes me to question who I think that I am. Now, that might be because someone is aggressive and they're, they're attacking me. But an enemy might also be somebody that when they show up, I start to feel uncomfortable because maybe I'm not as kind and merciful and inclusive as I would like to be. And that person's presence starts to challenge what I think about myself. And I would rather that they're not around. And so I wanna hold them at arm's length or I wanna turn that, that, that person into a caricature and hold them, like kind of cast them out, that they're, they're on the other side, they're on the wrong side of history. They have become my enemies. And I think the radical nature of what Jesus challenges us with these different categories is that we see in Scripture that God's desire is for all people to be liberated. All people to be liberated. Our neighbors, our enemies. The desire of God, the deep desire of God for the oppressed to be liberated, but also for the oppressors 
to be liberated. God is not looking for simply an inversion of power structures, that the powerless become the powerful and the powerful become the powerless. That's not kingdom thinking. And we have to keep looking to Jesus to know how are we meant to live? Because if we don't keep our, our, our eyesight on King Jesus, we continue to lower it to these lesser gods, these kind of political ideologies that we find in our country that keep informing us. These are your neighbors. Those are your enemies. These people are good. Those people are evil. These people deserve a seat at the table. Those people do not deserve a seat at the table. When we lower our sights from King Jesus, this is what we do as human beings. We break up into little tribes. But Jesus on the cross reveals a God who opens wide his arms to embrace the whole world, both the oppressed and the oppressors. There's a lot of different ways in the Christian household that we talk about what exactly happened on the cross. Um, and we need all of them. It's not, there's not one simple explanation. In fact, if you're part of a, a Christian community where there's just one way of understanding the cross, it's too small. There's a lot of different ways. But one of the most profound to me is this idea of, of God opening wide his arms to embrace the whole world, the oppressed and the oppressors. And as I mentioned before, I think the problem with some of our inclusion and exclusion thinking is that it often ostracizes the oppressors. The oppressors no longer get a seat at the table. And that might be on racial grounds, that might be on patriarchal grounds, that, you know, whatever it is, whatever this dividing wall of hostility that we've created, these people are favored and angelic and they get to be in and those people are evil and corrupt and they are part of the problem and so they no longer get to exist. And that, that's that inversion of power struggle that, struggles that I don't think is actually kingdom thinking. Because when I think about Jesus on the cross, I think about Jesus in, rather than retaliating, looking down upon these people who were the oppressors, the religious elite in Israel, you know, the Jewish Sanhedrin, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees that put him on the cross. I see the Roman soldiers um, that were trying to uh, suppress this political revolution that they perceived in King Jesus. And what does he say? He didn't say, boy, I can't wait until God hands all these people this, this horrible thing at the end of time where they're finally going to get their due and they're going to be thrown out and then all the good people are going to get to go to heaven. No, he says, Father God, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And that should be, I think to some degree, rather insulting to a lot of us because we like to think that we're the good people and the people that we disagree with, the people that are the other tribe, those other people over there where there's this ideological line in the sand, they're the bad people. We're on the right side of history and they're not. And it should kind of stir us up. It should maybe confound us a little bit that Jesus on the cross as the best demonstration of what God is really like, says, Father God, forgive them. Forgive the Roman oppressors. Forgive the Jewish oppressors. Because for us, it, it stings a little bit. We go, no, no, those guys, they don't deserve heaven. They don't deserve the mercy of God. They've done these horrible and terrible things. But what does Jesus not do? He does not go around pushing people away. Jesus doesn't go around drawing lines in the sand. In fact, the only line in the sand that Jesus quite literally drew was to confound people of their assumptions of who's good and who's bad, the woman that had been caught in adultery. And his challenge was actually to bring down this line between uh, the morally superior people who are accusing this woman of adultery and who she is. And he says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. I always like to imagine like Jesus had some little brother that was like also perfect, but just didn't get enough rep. And he's in the back and he just goes, 
<laughs> Kevin Smith Christ or something like that, you know? Um, but we see throughout, like, Jesus brings down these dividing walls of hostility, these assumptions that we have of human beings of who we think is in and who we think is out. And one of the best ways that I see this vision of the cross, especially Jesus' whole life, but especially the cross, um, demonstrated is Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 11 to 22. And you have to remember that, like, like a lot of Paul's letters, this was written uh, to a community that is being divided on uh, class lines, there's some ethnic warfare going on here. There's a lot of discontent. And I think the more that we see this vitriol within our own uh, national culture, but even within our church culture, um, we can lean in a little bit more to what Paul was writing in the first century and begin to understand the radical nature of his vision of Christ on the cross. So this is written in Ephesians 2, um, 11 to 22. He's talking about this idea of reconciliation and what is it that the cross accomplishes for the human family. He says, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, how many of you are Gentiles by birth? Oh, everyone? Gentile just means you're not Jewish. That's all of us. We're Goyim, okay? So remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I love that. That's the vision that we have of what happens on the cross. It's that those of us who are far away have now been brought near because of what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. And Paul continues, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. I love that phrase, put to death their hostility. That one of the things that Jesus did on the cross was to put to death uh, hostility or this, these, these dividing walls of hostility. Now, Lauren and I are from a country where there are a lot of walls. And on top of those walls, there's barbed wire. I remember one of my first uh, images of our, our church on the Sandy Row in Belfast um, that my, my dad was pastor at. Um, one of my earliest memories of church is big walls or in church that have barbed wire, like glued to the top of it basically, and shards of glass um, posted in the top of it so that we would prevent other people, Catholics, from being able to get in. And that was my view of church. That's what church is when you grow up in a sectarian culture. 
you have this inherent bias against the people that are supposed to be on the other side of the wall. My dad growing up in Derry, I know a lot of you have watched Derry Girls, which I think is a very, very funny show. But my dad grew up in Derry during the 70s, kind of at the height of a lot of those troubles and the marches that would go on and the amount of police that are required to keep these two communities apart. The irony being that all of this was based on religion. It was based on people who claimed to follow Jesus and to say, no, 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 our way of following Jesus is better than your way, and so we're clearly superior to you. And so you can understand the degree of uh, suspicion I have with what's happened in this country in the past 20 years. Uh, because I've seen this film before, and it doesn't turn out well. I mean, even what did we see this week? Someone breaks into Nancy Pelosi's house and beats her 82-year-old husband with a hammer. I mean, raise your hand if that's the country you want to live in. Oh, nobody? I mean, this is what we're seeing. This is what we're experiencing. And perhaps we read a passage of scripture like this about the dividing wall of hostility coming down, and we say, is it possible in our hyper-partisan age that we could live like this? Is, it, does, is this vision just too naive to believe that those dividing walls of hostility can come down. Some of you might not be old enough to remember the 2008 election, but I think it was the last time that I saw two presidential candidates speak decently of one another. Do you remember this? That there were people making these accusations about Barack Obama and John McCain was the one to stand up and to say, no, he is a decent and good man. We just have different visions of how to solve the problems of this country. And both of them claimed, made that claim to say, no, we both love this country. We want to see this country grow. And we just have different ideas. Is that even possible anymore? Because what we see in the political arena is that to be seen embracing somebody from the other side is betrayal. Because they're just inherently evil people. It's no longer about having different solutions to the same problems. It's about being on the wrong side of history. And I think tragically, when we insist on these dividing walls, when we create them, when we say that group of people over there is inherently evil and we need to make a stance and we need to make all of these claims, we're claiming that we know better than God. That's what we're doing. We're saying, no, 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 the, naive, the naivety of Christ on the cross that's just not feasible. That's not the real world. We live in a real world where there are these walls and we've got to protect our tribe and we've got to be out for our own interests and we've got to hold our neighbors and our enemies at arm's length if we hope to get any piece of the pie. And it's the failure that we see now in the American project that there, this conversation about civil war, like that's where we're coming to. And I wonder all of a sudden if perhaps this now seemingly irrelevant message of Christianity, of Christ on the cross, becomes perhaps the most vital thing that we could offer to the world. But it requires of you and I as Christians the bravery to step out of hyper-partisanship, for us to be the ones who go first to see those dividing walls of hostility brought down and to be a new kind of humanity, a new creation where there is no Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus.
This is what the theologian Miroslav Volf wrote about this. Uh, Volf grew up in the former Yugoslavia when they were in civil wars, Croatians versus Serbians and Muslims, and there's just, it was an absolute mess. And he, so he writes a lot about this theology of reconciliation and embrace. He said, the cross is the giving up of God's self in order not to give up on humanity. It is the consequence of God's desire to break the power of human enmity without violence and to receive human beings into divine communion. The goal of the cross is the dwelling of human beings in the spirit, in Christ, and in God. Forgiveness is therefore not the culmination of Christ's relation to the offending other. It is a passage leading to embrace. The arms of the crucified are open, a sign of a space in God's self, an invitation for the enemy to come in. And so we see on the cross, we see the beginning with forgiveness, Father God, forgive them for they know not know what they're doing. And then we see this hopeful move towards repentance at the radical nature of realizing what we're doing as a the human family in tearing ourselves apart because of our supposed moral superiority over the other leads us to repentance, to, to rethink what we're doing, and then to enter into reconciliation and to see that peace and justice are actually the same thing. That God's justice is not simply a punishment of all of the bad guys and an elevation of all the good guys, but that God desires that all should be saved, the oppressed and the oppressor, the powerful and the powerless. And that challenges us as cross-shaped people to wonder how it is that we are to walk the world because we're, we must be willing to embrace this other, the enemy, the whomever it might be, if we are to truly embody the spirit of Jesus. Because if we're unwilling to embrace those who have offended, if we're unwilling to embrace those that we perceive as the other, we've already lost. And I'm very serious about that when we see you know, liberals and conservatives or um, the races or whatever it is, as soon as we make the claim that we refuse to embrace the person on the other side, we've already lost because we've decided, no, 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 the dividing walls of hostility are all already there um, and we're just going to accept them. This is why, as a church, I reject this call for us to, have, to create stances. There's always this need, like we need stances and we need to, put everything that we believe on the website and we need to reinforce all of these things so that we can be on the right side of history. And not so much in our generation, but it's still there, but it's always been, you know, about abortion. Are you pro-life or are you pro-choice? And you've got to make a stance because you've got to stand up for truth and you've got to, you know, in this desire for inclusivity or this, you know, whatever it is. And in our community and like in our generation, we see it about LGBT issues. Well, you've got to be affirming or you've got to be non-affirming. You've got to make stances and you've got to make policies and you've got to make claims. And I think the problem with that thinking is that we're re-erecting these dividing walls of hostility. I think we're saying we're going to be inclusive except for the people who aren't as inclusive as we are. And so we're going to be exclusive to them. And the problem is with a lot of these kinds of stances and these kinds of blanket claims is number one, it takes very complex issues that require care that require embrace and listening, and it reduces them and makes them simple so that we don't have to actually engage with what it is that we claim to believe. I see that with pro-life, I see that with pro-choice, 
I see that with this block called LGBT. We take very complex issues that require care, we simplify them, they turn them into an ideology, and then we just draw another line in the sand and say, you don't get to be part of what we're doing unless you cross that line. Number two, I think a lot of times when we make those claims, it's actually a signifier that we are morally superior to the people that won't make that same claim. I think that's what we're doing. That's that Pharisaic notion that we see in scripture that Jesus is engaging with. It's always saying, well, we know better. We know the heart of God better than anybody else. We know the scriptures better than everybody else. So I'm gonna make this claim, but it's really, a, it's virtue signaling to the people that are on our tribe that we're doing a good job. It's got nothing to do with actually reaching across the aisle to the people that we, uh, we are against. And ultimately, as I said before, it makes embrace possible. If I just make claims and stances and I draw lines, how can I welcome you into my space? How can I provide radical hospitality? How can I give you a vision of the heart of Jesus if I've already made a claim and said, nope, we don't accept these kinds of people. Nope, those people are in or out. And I know, and I know as I'm saying this, you're either thinking you're insulted because you feel like I'm talking about your tribe or you're saying, oh yeah, those people on the other side, they really need to hear this. And that's the problem. That's where we've all gone wrong. And when we come back to this vision that Paul gives us in Galatians 6 of restoring one another gently and, and, and you know, not being too prideful in ourselves uh, because we might be the ones to fall before the day is out of carrying our own loads, of carrying each other's burdens. When we see the humility in fulfilling the law of Christ he's inviting us to, we recognize how ideologically um, just stunted we are that we need all these claims and stances and lines to be drawn. And gradually, these little tribes become smaller and smaller and smaller because we all have these 95 theses of things that you're supposed to agree with me on. And the tragedy is then we never grow. We never learn. We never engage with other people and just see life through their eyes. But we make embrace impossible. I think this is what's so powerful to me about a theology of embrace. It does not mean that we validate offenses. It doesn't mean that we agree with everything that somebody believes. But that's not the point. It's when we take these things that we claim to believe and we use them as a bludgeon to keep other people small and to keep them at arm's length. We have undone the work of the cross. A theology of embrace is also not encouraging us to forgive and forget and to pretend like everything is okay. It's not. These are complex issues, and I think you should be thinking through them. But as I said many times before, I think you need to think about them as a Christian first and not as a liberal or a conservative or even as an American. You should have opinions on abortion. You should have opinions on sexuality and gender, but you have to do the careful work to know what it is that you claim to believe and what you're thinking, but also to do it with an extraordinary and radical care, to have integrity. Because a lot of times we claim a belief without even knowing why, because we don't want to think, because we don't want to engage with God, because we don't want to engage with other people. We'd rather just sit in our own little ideological palaces. I think ultimately embrace is a risky act of vulnerability. It's very vulnerable to put yourself in a position to embrace somebody that's on the other side. 
Because what you're risking is saying, well, will it be reciprocated? If I just go ahead and reject you or, or other you or put you on the other side of this dividing wall of hostility, I don't have to ask those questions about being opened up and being vulnerable. So I'm gonna talk through what I believe is a theology of embrace, kind of thinking through actually what an embrace is. And I was gonna have everybody stand up and hug, them, hug each other, but I already see the grimaces, like I know some of you aren't big on hugging, so we'll, we'll make it, it's like a spiritual hug. We're gonna spiritually hug each other here, okay? Jesus, sounds like something they would've done in the Jesus movement in the 70s. All right, theology of embrace. What does it look like for us to embrace theologically? Number one, we open up our arms. When we go to embrace somebody, we open up our arms. And it's a reaching out for the other person because we're discontent with isolation, because we realize that these dividing walls of hostility have prevented us from loving neighbors and they prevented us from loving enemies. And so when we open up our arms, we create a space for the other person in ourselves, in the same way that this is what God does on the cross, that God opens wide his arms. God creates a space in God's self to welcome us in. And so we participate in that same vision. We open up our arms to create a space to welcome others. It's a gesture of invitation. Number two, we wait. We wait for the other person to enter in. Because a theology of embrace is not a theology of invasion. We're not pushing ourselves on other people. We're not wagging fingers in somebody else's face and telling them that they're wrong and that they need to repent and they need to get right with Jesus. But when we open up our arms and then we wait, there's, there's this, we're enabling the desire of the other person to enter into communion with us. We're risking that vulnerability to allow them to step into our space. Thirdly, we close our arms around one another. When we embrace, we're recognizing that we feel, like we sensually feel the presence of ourselves and the presence of this other person that comes through gentleness. And what does gentleness do? I think gentleness allows us to lay down all of the labels that we would put on somebody and to recognize that they're an actual human being waiting to be loved. That's what gentleness does is that when, we, when, you, when you embrace somebody and they embrace you, you feel this mutual presence that this is two people in a moment together. And it's not assimilation. We don't embrace one another in order to make the other person like us. We embrace one another in order for that person to see themselves as worthy of being loved. And then fourthly, we open up our arms again. We embrace, but we can't stay there. It's very impractical. But when we open up our arms and we take a step back from one another, we begin to honor our individuality, to honor the that, this fact that we're all on different journeys working towards finding truth of seeking God. And so we honor the fact that we're individuals, but we also recognize that we've been transformed by this encounter that we've had with the other. And we begin to release our contempt for one another. We begin to release this, this making small of those who were on the other side. And we recognize that we're in this together and we have far more in common than we do um, that, that divides us. And so we're gonna take a moment and we're gonna sit in this space to come before God and essentially to confess where we have re-erected dividing walls of hostility, where we have 
taken a group of people and we've made them small and we've turned them into this ideological pariah and held them at arm's length so that we don't have to engage with them. And that may be because you just have this exclusive streak in you that you love to draw those lines, but it also may be that you recognize, wow, I've, I've been so pursuant of inclusivity that I've actually become very exclusive to people who don't share that same value. And rather than making it about somebody else, I wanna invite you in this time with the Lord to make it about yourself and to ask these two questions. Number one, who am I unwilling to embrace? Like I said, if there are types of people or a particular person in your life that you're just unwilling to embrace, we've already lost. We have no vision for reconciliation. We have no hope to see heaven on earth when we say, I am unwilling to embrace that person or to embrace those people. The caveat here being, of course, that we're not being asked, like I said, to forgive and forget and that we don't put ourselves in danger. You know, when you think about abuse, like I, as I was putting this together, I was thinking about my abuser from when I was a kid and saying, what is my heart for this person? Do I want to see them go to hell and burn forever for what they did to me? Because I don't think that that's God's heart for that person. Do I have a vision of God's heart that I can forgive and that I can hope the best, genuinely hope the best for the people that have oppressed me to see them come to the cross as well? And the second question, what do I need from God in order to open my arms to my neighbors and my enemies? Do I feel that resistance where I'm closed off? Where I have this posture of saying, no, I refuse. And what do I need to open up, to put myself out there, to be vulnerable, and to be, to be the embodiment of Christ on the cross, almost quite literally, to extend my arms to embrace the whole world as Christ Jesus did? What do I need from God? Do I need a vision of hope? Do I need a softening of my own heart? Do I need to recognize the hypocrisy that lives in me or the sense of moral superiority that I carry? What do I need from God in order to move into that posture of embrace? So I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna give you a couple minutes just to kind of spend some time with the Lord um, in this vision for embrace. What am I who am I unwilling to embrace? And what do I need from God in order to open my arms to my neighbors and my enemies? So Heavenly Father, again, we repent of the times where we, out of a sense of security or moral superiority, have re-erected dividing walls of hostility, where we have believed on some deep level that the vision that you give us on the cross of a unified humanity is naive and unattainable, and where we've decided to take matters into our own hands and just make line after line after line in the sand of saying who's in and who's out, who is worthy and who is unworthy. We repent of this, Lord. And Holy Spirit, I pray that right now you will light upon each of your dear ones here, that you would begin to show us in our own hearts where we have that refusal to embrace, where we have held a person or a people group at arm's length in the name of purity, in the name of security or fear, whatever it might be. 
speak to us each about where we are doing that. And then God, show us what it is that we need to ask of you in order to move from exclusion to embrace. That in doing so, we might be the arms of Christ opened up before the whole world. I'm just gonna give you a couple moments just to spend some time with the Lord. It's our willingness to embrace both the neighbor and the enemy, the oppressed and the oppressor that makes us most like King Jesus. I wanna invite you to stand with me. And we're gonna enter into a time of worship. And in this time, we recognize that while we were enemies, that God forgave us of our sins and brought us into his heavenly family. While we were the ones actively building these dividing walls of hostility, while we were the ones that were othering people that we didn't deem worthy of us, God forgave us of those sins. His radical embrace on the cross is an embrace of you and it's an embrace of me and that we get to enact this entirely new vision of humanity in this family of God that we call the church. And I'm gonna invite some of our elders and leaders to be on either side. Perhaps the Lord is doing something in you where he's bringing up this unwillingness to embrace or this, uh, this dividing wall of hostility that you've erected and you recognize this is not of God and I need to let this go. These are people who are gonna stand with you in that gap and they're gonna pray over you that you would receive what you need from God in order to better demonstrate the love of Christ for the world. So I'm gonna pray. We're all going to sing over one another these truths of how we have been forgiven, how we have been redeemed and reconciled so that they give us courage to go back out into the world and to demonstrate uh, the love of Christ on the cross. And I'm, anybody who needs to pray, by all means, come forward and someone will lay hands on you. So I'll invite those leaders and elders to move now. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for this radical, naive, unreasonable vision that we have of Jesus on the cross who makes peace in the human family. May we lay down our arms. May we stop fighting one another. May we stop making these proclamations that other people are evil and that we are good. And when we recognize that we are all at the feet of the cross, we are all in need of redemption. May we embody peace as a form of justice to show the world that there is another way. God, if we can't get this right, nobody will get it right. Thank you. Thank you for this vision of Jesus on the cross who brings us peace, who draws us close, who embraces us, forgives us of our sins of hostility and makes us into one new human family. And so Holy Spirit, we give you permission to do the work in this room that you need to do so that we can leave this place with courage and integrity to be your body, to be your ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven. Amen. 
This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.